everyone. Welcome to episode 157 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are glad to be here with you today. It has been a lot to live in the United States over the last couple of weeks, so we thought it was a good day to start with a poem. This is from the book Bonfire Opera by Danusha Lamaris. The poem is called Obad with a Chance of Rain. There is a bed in each of us, a bed of memory, bed of damp grass, of straw, mattress tucked against the wall or spread out under the stars, bed of the beloved, bed of small deaths, the sheets smooth just so, and all around the world someone is about to rise from it, to lift a head from the pillow, slip into a robe, duck under the low arched door, let there be a faint sun, a cloudy sky, let the two lovers linger there for the time it takes to write this poem. Let the bed be soft as down as the milky seeds of dandelions. It is almost, but not quite, time to go. The sky is dark. Let no one they love try to look for them. Let the children, if there are children, sleep. Let the sirens quiet. The guns rust, poised in their chambers. The bombing cease. And when the lovers rise as they must, may the rain fall and soften their return. Thank you for that. And just a little side note, Obad in the title means a poem or piece of music appropriate to dawn or early morning. So thanks for kicking us off with that. Seemed appropriate to have a little poetry this week. And we have a thank you. Yes, we have a thank you to a new patron. Katie, thank you for joining our Patreon community. Very much. And we also wanted to follow up on some information about Jenny Colvin. We mentioned in the last episode and that she passed away unexpectedly. And there are two places where you can donate in her name if you would like to do that. The first is Greenville Animal Care. Jenny was an advocate of the Compassionate Treatment for Animals. And then there's also Friends of the Furnham Library. You can donate to them. Jenny had a plan to create a mindfulness space at the Duke Library. And so they are collecting donations for that in her name to try and make that happen. We'll put these links in the show notes if you would like more information or the direct link to that. And feel free to email us with any questions as well at bookcougars at gmail.com. So, Emily, what are you currently reading? I found this book because this author has a new book coming out that I couldn't find. (laughs) And I went to the Hamden Library uh, up north from where we're recording today to find it. It's called Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For by Ella Risbridger. Now, she's a British woman, and so all of the recipes are in grams and milliliters and metrics and that sort of thing. So if you have a good conversion calculator, that'll come in handy. Or if you have a food scale, you can set them up for her measurements. But it's a very fun book. It has illustrations by a friend of hers that are beautiful watercolors. She's just kind of a no-nonsense person. I really appreciate how she writes. One of the things, I've never really seen this in a book with recipes that she does that I'm a full proponent for is how to dirty the fewest dishes. (laughs) I mean, I am, I mean, I wouldn't use the word lazy, but I'll do anything not to dirty another dish when I'm cooking. And she really works on that. 
And she writes very much in the style of Lori Colwin. So if you're a fan of hers, I highly recommend this book. I'm about a quarter of the way through, and I've literally just been reading it from front to back. Again, it's called Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For by Ella Risbridger, and she has a new book coming out soon that I'm hoping to get my hands on as well. Nice. Okay, so I love the title, Midnight Chicken. That just makes me smile. And the illustrations are just colorful and lovely. Yeah, and I should say the illustrations are by her friend Alyssa Cunningham. Yeah, it's a fun book. I highly recommend it. Yeah, and I think the whole thing too about not dirtying dishes, if you can help it, like that'll help save the environment, you know, cutting down on water usage, energy usage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am doing a super slow read of Rachel Carson's first book, Under the Sea Wind, which came out in 1941. I have read only three chapters so far. Every couple days I pick it up and I really enjoy it. It causes me to stop and pause and watch the birds and think about birds migrating because it's what it's about. Which we live in a place because of the estuary that we live on. It is bird central here. It's amazing. I actually had an opportunity recently to talk to the Audubon of Connecticut. And that week that I was talking to them, they said that there was estimated to be 6 million birds passing over the skies of Connecticut in one night that week. Yeah. That's amazing. It's intense from South America up to the Arctic and all the stops in between. Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. I'm glad you're enjoying it. The other book I'm reading is also about food. I'm going to make you all hungry this week. This one is called That Sounds So Good by Carla Lolly Music. That is really her name. I think I'm late to the show with her. She's worked for Bon Appetit. She has a lot of videos online. That's how I first found her. The video that I came across, and it was one of those just by happenstance when you get sucked down YouTube and you're watching a booktuber and then you look to the right and it's like, oh, someone's making food. The recipe she was making is in this book and it's called Spaghetti with Melted Cauliflower Sauce. It is so delicious. It's my new go-to recipe. You can find it online. I'll put a link in the show notes. Speaking of not dirtying many dishes, it's one of those one pot meals, except that you have to boil pasta in a second pot. But I just love it. Her recipes are really accessible, not a ton of ingredients. And then a cool thing she does as well is on the bottom of the page on each recipe, she has something that's called spin it where there's vegetarian or vegan substitutions, or just if you don't have this, try that, which I think is fun because if you find a recipe you love and you want to keep making it, but maybe the person you're cooking for gets sick of it, (laughs) you can change it up just a little bit, which her recipes really allow for. Again, it's called That Sounds So Good by Carla Lolly Music, and I highly recommend you check out her videos as well. Awesome. I'm definitely making that recipe this weekend. Yummy. It's so good. Sounds delish. Well, I started reading my big book, Summer Stack. We mentioned we're doing Sue's Challenge again this year. I started with The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. This is a reread for me. I read it when it first came out. I was a little skeptical because there was so much hype around the book. Back then, I was also slightly protective of Dracula and vampire novels in general. Like I Yeah, I I had issues. (laughs) But over the years, it's been on my mind to reread. 
So I'm really happy I'm finally rereading it. I had a challenge finding it, but then lo and behold, when we were up at Booktopia at the Northshire Bookstore, we were standing in the little cubby in the lit section, and I happened to look up, and there it was. So I, She was so excited. I snatched it right away because, you know, I didn't want to lose it. There was one copy. <laughs> there was one copy. So this book is 600 and something pages, 670-ish or so. I'm on page... 312, so over 40% through. I just wanted to share this one paragraph because I got such a kick out of it. St. Mary's Church, my father said, was a homely little piece of Victoriana that lingered at the edge of the old section of campus. I'd passed it hundreds of times without ever going in, but it seemed to me now that a Catholic church was the right companion for all these horrors. Didn't Catholicism deal with blood and resurrected flesh on a daily basis? Wasn't it expert in superstition? I somehow doubted that the hospitable plain Protestant chapels that dotted the university could be much help. They didn't look qualified to wrestle with the undead. I felt sure those big, square, Puritan churches on the town green would be helpless in the face of a European vampire. A little witch-burning was more in their line. Something limited to the neighbors. Love that. Um, That's I thought that said so much in, in one paragraph. So The Historian, it's a vampire novel. There are a couple different character groupings that are going on. There's a grad student and his mentor, and then another woman comes along. And then there's a man who has a daughter who is that former graduate student. Then you go back in time to the advisor in his quest. So it's all about history libraries, archives. There's so much fun stuff in here, but it is a slow burn. It is not a thriller. Okay. Yeah. But you're sticking with it. Oh, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, good. I'm glad the reread is going well. Yeah. There's like one scene where there's a vampire in an archive and the narrator's like, I didn't know whether he was thirsty for knowledge or something else. (laughs) So again, that's The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. I'm reading Eventide. I think that's how you say it. I'm not sure if it's Eventide or Eventide. I just thought of that when I had to say it out loud. (laughs) Uh, By Kent Harreff. This is the second book in the Plain Song series. The series is my big summer book challenge this year. I've got a buddy read set up for it on Goodreads. I'm going to talk more about Plain Song, which is the first book in the series, which I read over the weekend. But I'm just about 100 pages into this, and I'm really enjoying it. Kent Harreff is just, his writing is spare, but it's very much of a place, which is in Colorado. Holt, Colorado is the name of the small town, and it's character-driven. And some of the characters from Plain Song are in this novel, and some are not, and new characters are arriving. Chris originally asked me like, so are you going to read all three in a row? Or are you going to take a break? And I decided since Plain Song was a reread, right when I started, I was like, oh, but it's not Plain Song. Like there are just some basic differences. But then some of the characters show up from Plain Song and I was like, okay, I'm in now. <laughs> so really enjoying it. Again, this is the second book in the series, Eventide by Kent Harris. So, Emily, what have you just read? I know you just mentioned one. I finished playing song. Chris and I both got boosted this weekend. We got our fourth COVID vaccine. 
And so we were both tired. I'm speaking for you, but used it as an excuse (laughs) to read, which I didn't mind, but I got more reading time than I had anticipated and picked up Plain Song and read it cover to cover. I loved it so much. So this also obviously is by Kent Harreff. It was published in 1999. It's the first book in the trilogy. The main characters are the McFerrin brothers who take in Victoria, who is a teenager who's become pregnant. And when her mother finds out she's pregnant, she literally locks her out of the house. So one of the teachers that works at Victoria's school puts her in touch with the McFerrin brothers who live about 15 miles outside of town in this small town in Colorado called Holt. They live on a cattle farm. They've lived there their whole life. Their parents were killed in a tragic accident. And their life is really simple. I mean, they work really hard, but it's simple. And Victoria arrives, and they take her in, and they build a family together. And it's really beautiful. Other characters in the story are Tom Guthrie, who is a school teacher, and his two sons, Ike and Bobby. Their mother is very depressed and ends up leaving and moving down to Denver. So it's really about small town life. As I was rereading it, I'm not sure if I thought of this when I read it last time, but it's about chosen family and how people make family together. They have simple lives, but they're really important to each other. I just loved it. The thing that's different, I will say that I missed when I started reading Eventide is Plain Song. Each chapter is titled with the characters' names. And it's really clear, and I love that. And then when I got to Eventide, it's like, chapter numbers? What the heck? (laughs) What you doing here, Kent? You know, but I'm getting used to it. The other thing I learned from Linda, the Cougars librarian, is that Kent Harriff passed away in 2014, Mm -hmm. which I didn't realize. So that's sad. The only other detail I wanted to say is that Eventide was published five years later in 2004. So he did take time to write books. Reminder that there is a Goodreads thread. If you want to read one, two, three, any of these books with me, I'd love your company. Awesome. Well, I read a graphic memoir, Messy Roots, a graphic memoir of a Wuhansi American by Laura Gao, G-A-O. This was recommended to me. Somebody told me about it. I, I asked somebody about lesbian graphic novels that were coming out. And this wasn't from her press, but she recommended it. And it just came out this year. It is Laura Gao's story of coming to America as a child, the adjustment that she had to make being more American than her parents who are struggling with the language, but she's in school. So she's young. And so she's picking up the language like it's nothing. They're in Texas. So she kind of has a Texas twang as well. She says y'all a lot. She also eventually grapples with her sexuality, like understanding what's going on with herself when she's in high school. There's also some scenes when they go back to China for a visit to visit family and the weird adjustment for her with that, wondering what's different for herself and what she sees differently. I really enjoyed it. The illustrations are kind of like Earth Tony. There's Mm -hmm. yellows and reds. Not all throughout. I think I didn't read it that carefully in terms of looking at different chapters to see if the tone of the color changes by different chapters, but it kind of looks like it might. So this is funny. Chapter 13, Q&A. She's doing an online test, and it says here, you got gay AF. 
which is appropriate. It's June 1st. So happy Pride Month, everyone. We're kicking that off. So then she's Googling how to ask out girls and things like that. I enjoyed it and highly recommend it if you're looking for another graphic novel from a diverse voice. That was Messy Roots, a graphic memoir of a Wuhanzi American by Laura Gao. Well, I had a little bit of ghost story reading. (laughs) It surprised me a little bit. (laughs) This makes me so happy. (laughs) So the first book was Hidden Pictures by Jason Reculak. His debut novel was Impossible Fortress, which was a coming-of-age story. It was a romance. It was hilarious. Laugh out loud funny. He was a Booktopia author that on Saturday night had us all cracking up because he used to work for Quirk Books. He doesn't anymore, but he shared a book about penises at the event, and it had a hole in the middle of the book. Let your imagination go wild with that one. Anyway, when I picked up Hidden Pictures, I thought it was going to be another book in that vein. It is not. It is a ghost story. And it's about Mallory, who's a 21-year-old recovering addict. She's gone through rehab. She has a sponsor. She's living in what I would call a safe house, but not in the vein of like being in witness protection, but just like a house where you're living with other people in recovery. You're making your life as simple as possible. Her sponsor, Russell, finds her a job working in suburban Philly. She's living in urban Philly at the time. So she moves to nanny for a family with a five-year-old. And soon after she gets there, she's living in kind of like this little cottage in the back of their beautiful mansion in suburbia. The child starts painting pictures that are kind of frightening of like an event of a murder. And Mallory, she feels like something's going on and something's wrong. But of course, as soon as she might have something to say about it, people just assume she's using again. So they don't think of her as a reliable person to be interpreting what these pictures might mean. So I'm not going to spoil it. It has an amazing twist. At one point, I screamed out loud, what the heck? And the gentleman caller was like, what? (laughs) So I had to explain the entire story to him. But it is a ghost story. And this is the sort of ghost story where there's a little bit of a possession going on of a person. I'm not an expert in ghost stories, but I loved it. It's a page turner. I will say I had gotten an arc and there were no pictures in mine. But when I was Googling a little bit about the book, I think there are pictures in the hardback version of this book. So I need to get my hands on a copy of it. Or if any of you listeners read it, please report back because I'm curious about that. And I think the pictures are like the pictures that this young boy is drawing in the story. So again, it's called Hidden Pictures by Jason Reculak. Well, I'll take us to a safe space now. Um, (laughs) I read three picture books by Jennifer Byrne. And thanks to listener Joan for emailing us about her friend, Jennifer, who writes fabulous children's books. I was able to get three of them. One of them was in our local library and our library system has several. So I requested two more. So these are the books I read. Manfish, a story of Jacques Cousteau. This was illustrated by Eric Poiberet. Sure, I mutilated that. I apologize. On Wings of Words, The Extraordinary Life of Emily Dickinson. This one was illustrated by Becca Stedlander. And then this was my favorite, 
Calvin Can't Fly, The Story of a Bookworm Birdie, illustrated by Keith Bendis. Such a cute story. You know, it's this bird who is just into reading. He just wants to read all the time and doesn't learn how to fly. And there's cute little scenes of him like in the library, reading books and adorable, adorable book. Like who wouldn't love a book about a little bird who doesn't fly because he's reading all the time. And then the Jacques Cousteau was great. I loved him growing up. I always watched. Um, And the Emily Dickinson book was really interesting. The artwork focused a lot on butterflies. And I believe Jennifer had an author note in there about butterflies and Emily Dickinson. So Really enjoyed all three of these. Thanks again to Joan for recommending them to me. Again, these were all picture books written by Jennifer Byrne. And I will keep my eye out for more books from her. Nice. Thanks, Joan. I read another ghost story, which Chris talked about on the last episode called Shudder by Ramona Emerson. Intense opening chapter, as Chris alluded to. I won't talk about it too much because we've already talked about it, but I did want to mention something that I thought was interesting because, reminder, the main protagonist is a forensic photographer for the police department. What I thought was interesting was that each of the chapters has a camera notation on it. And um, what, like, it, the camera then is important in the chapter. And some of it just also details how photography changed over time because her mother in the story was also a photographer and had older versions of cameras. Whereas Rita, by the time she's a forensic photographer, she's using digital cameras and taking cards out of the camera and uploading them into her computer. So it does talk about technology, which I think is interesting The other thing that's interesting is that the Navajo have a fear of death and don't speak of it. And the author is really kind of facing that head on with this book, which I think was a really interesting part of it. Chris talked about it. It wasn't really of a place, but I did feel like there was a lot of Albuquerque in there and the dryness. And maybe some of that is because I was a fan of the show Breaking Bad. And so it kind of took me back to that whole thing, which I already have an image of from that show. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like if you know the area, Mm -hmm. you can easily visualize it. But I don't think the landscape was a character Mm -hmm. as happens in some novels. Yeah. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. I wanted to read a couple favorite sentences. So she's come in contact with one of the gentlemen she works with at the police department that she doesn't care for very much. And he doesn't seem to care for her very much either. So this is Garcia speaking to her first. So where's the boss? He didn't tell me he was sending you. Rita says, sorry to disappoint. You know, he has better things to do than spend this morning with you. And then she's thinking. An enema would have been better than spending any morning with this man. (laughs) I thought that was a pretty good line. (laughs) So some good one-liners in there. She's really good at dialogue. Again, it's called Shudder by Ramona Emerson. Oh, you know, one thing I meant to say about the Plainsong series, I wonder how you feel about this, and maybe we've talked about this before. He doesn't use quotations for any of his dialogue. Mm -hmm. Does that bother you? No, it doesn't bother me. I think probably the first time I encountered it, it kind of was hard to get used to, but I think I'm used to it now. Mm -hmm. I'm having the opposite problem with the historian because it's stories within stories. And so there are all of these quotation marks. 
you're reading this narrative, but it's actually somebody telling the story, so they have quotation marks. Mm. So there have been several times where I start reading it like somebody's speaking because there's a quotation mark, and I'm like, oh, no, that's still somebody's retelling of somebody else's story. Interesting. That's funny. I'm reading three books with no quotations, and you're reading one heavily (laughs) quotations. So how do you cope? I love no quotations. Okay. Yeah. I think it's kind of cutting to the chase and adds to it being a little bit more spare because there's less of that he said, she said, I said, we said. (laughs) So I don't mind it at all. Okay. Yeah. So Biblio Adventures. Well, we went on a joint couch Biblio Adventure, the Mark Twain House. They had an event with author Shelley Puhak, whose new book is called The Dark Queens. The bloody rivalry that forged the medieval world. Yes, it was really interesting. We also want to thank the publisher for sending us copies of this book. And so when we saw the event, we're like, oh, yeah, we have to jump on that. So it's the story of Brunhild and Fredegund and how they were both powerful queens at this time. The book came about by accident, really. The author was researching some other story about a Swedish queen. Yeah, she was in Denmark, and she was studying Queen Estrid. Yeah, and so Queen Estrid, she's the one who made a king of Norway commit suicide. She had him jump off a ship or something into the icy cold waters. She came then upon these two queens as rulers, and she actually found that at this time period, there were like six heads of state who were all women. It came up through conversation. It's just how we've been robbed of so many stories of foundational, powerful women throughout history. You know, they don't need to be just defeated. They need to be obliterated. Right. One of the things I really thought about you, Chris, because we weren't sitting together, but we were side by side watching this in different homes. And one of the things she talked about is why they were forgotten. Yes. And one of the things she talked about is that a lot of the source material was lost over time because it was written on papyrus. And now the things that are still in archives and libraries were written on parchment. And that part of the reason she was able to get information about these queens is because there were two eyewitness reports of the timeline and the lives that they led. Right. Yeah. She talked about that. I remember that saying that a lot of history was being rewritten. You Mm -hmm. know, the victors always rewrite history. We know that. So that was happening at this time period. But yeah, the whole papyrus thing, their reigns were at that transition point. So papyrus does not do well in moist Northern European areas. It survives the desert climate much better. But yeah, that whole transition to a new form of capturing documentation, I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. And she also talked about how lovely it's been that archives have been digitized because she started her research prior to COVID, but then she had to be doing some research during COVID and could do it from the safety of her computer in her home. Yeah. A lot of it, but I also hear archivists screaming in the background. So if any of you are listening and you're screaming at us, uh, at your speaker or whatever, there's so much that's not digitized. Mm -hmm. So we just want to put that out there as well, too. But really, it has been a, a real, do I say, blessing for a lot of researchers to have so much digitized Yeah. so that their research does not necessarily come to a screeching halt in all cases. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of archivists were super busy during the pandemic trying to fulfill requests 
in new ways mm. that they didn't used to do. Yeah. It's an interesting book. We both have copies. We're hoping to do a buddy read of it in the future. It was one we had considered about doing as a read along, but changed gears at one point. Yeah, we had a conversation about it in Breakwater Books here in town, our local independent bookstore. We were having a good browse, and that was definitely one that we had in our hands for a while. Yeah. I believe that this event was recorded, and if that is the case, we will put a link to it in the show notes. She was a compelling, fun person to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm almost certain they always have their stuff available, which is really nice. And then we went on a joint jaunt in person together. That was really, really fun. We went up to Rhode Island, to Charlestown, Rhode Island. We stopped at a library. Sadly, we didn't realize it closed at four. And I think we got there at 10 till four. Oh, not even that. I think we got there like at four <laughs> yeah. and we were standing in the foyer and another patron was there and the librarian locked the door and he's like, oh, do you close now? And she's like, yeah. She's like, you guys can stay for a few more minutes while we shut things down, but I just can't let anybody else in at this point. So we did a quick walk through the library. It was the Cross Mills Public Library and just a really well-lit library. I mean, it had such great natural lighting and so many plants. I don't think I've ever been in a library with so many plants. It was unbelievable, actually. And partly, I'm sure, due to the fact that the lighting was so amazing and just the plants belonged there. Yeah. Yeah. You would think like the library's craving plants, you know, with that kind of light. So it was a really wonderful space. We didn't get to go downstairs, which is where the nonfiction and computers were and things like that. But who knows? Maybe we'll be back. And then there was a little mowed grass path where they invited you in with a sign to go on this reading trail. And we started to go, we were actually videoing it. And one of the librarians came up and said, I just need to give you two warnings, poison ivy and ticks. Yes. Those are two words. If you put them together, one of each of those words, I'm out. And so we started to walk through and I looked down and we're standing on poison ivy and I was like, okay, that's enough for me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Let's go. It was a nice idea. Maybe when we go back, we'll go like in the dead of winter when those things are not as much of a threat. Yes. Or we can just bring some big rubber boots or something. (laughs) I don't know. But then you're right. The historical society was also there and we peeked in the windows. It too was closed. Yeah. And then we went to Sly Fox Den 2. T-O-O, which is a beautifully delicious restaurant run by Chef Sherry. Chef Sherry, who, oh my gosh, she made this delicious spread. Uh, They served it buffet style. So Native American cuisine is what she specializes in. We were there by the invitation of Soho Press. Juliet Grahams invited us for this wonderful author event. With Ramona Emerson, the author of Shudder, the book I was just talking about. And Marcy Rendon, who is a author of a series. Right. It's the Cash Black Bear series. And we'll put all three of the books in the show notes. We also have copies of that book to give away. Yes, so stay we tuned mm-hmm. on that one. Both of the authors were just delightful. The whole event was outside, which was really nice. They had brought in a couch and Juliet just asked them some questions about their writing and these books. She introduced the books, which was really nice. You know, editors have a great way of doing that. (laughs) So, And then also talked about how they came to get Marcy Rendon's backlist because the publisher she had been publishing with 
kind of went they went back romped in no you know and that is just such a boon for a publisher to get somebody's complete backlist in that way and have that kind of consistency introduce the series to new readership right so they're reprinting books one and two and then they're coming out with book three and the other thing i wanted to just mention about the book shutter by ramona emerson which comes out in august by the way but you can pre-order it now the book is about this forensic photographer and the cases and the deaths in it are very intense. She had experience with that and it really shows in the book. I yeah. Think. And all of the scenes are from actual crimes that happened, which makes you shudder even more. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the other scenes with the grandmother were autobiographical in nature. Right. When Chris was talking about it, There's chapters that alternate and they're back and forth in time and then it all kind of comes together in the present. Ramona talked about how important her grandmother was in her life and you really feel that. It was nice for me, you know, you read it before we went. I was in the middle of it when we went. So then when I was finishing the second half, I really thought about that. Yeah. Poignant. Yeah. So this was an author dinner hosted by, like we said, Soho Press, and they invited area booksellers to come and meet these authors and learn about their work. And then us, I think we were the only podcast people there. Yeah. But yeah, that was really fun to talk to people, to meet some people from Soho Press to talk with them about what they do behind the scenes to put out these fantastic books. I really enjoyed it very much. And I thought Juliet was really smart in that we all had dinner at different picnic tables. And she had the authors sit at different tables. And then after dinner, when dessert came, she switched them to different tables. Right. Yeah. She, she was very mingly. She yes. did a good job. She really that. did. She's yeah. like, you're going to hate me now, but right. <laughs> this is what we're going to do. And I appreciated that. And it was really fun. I got to talk to Marcy quite a bit at dinner. And she talked about this with Juliet's introduction as well, that in rural areas, it's quite easy to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, even now, but, you know, back in the day, even easier. Mm-hmm. Oh, I dropped my gun and it killed my brother. You know, right. and everyone in town knows that the brothers hated each other. Right. Things like that. She also does a lot of advocacy work. And when she was talking about that, she was also talking about the terrible numbers of disappearances of Native women and it's an epidemic, really. And so she's been doing advocacy work around that. And then also, we haven't read the Cash Black Bear series yet. We're going to. But I think one of them is about children who've gone missing. You know, another thing that's being unearthed yeah. more and more recently. Yeah. And so that first book in the series is going to be their uh, Soho's Passport to Crime, where it's just kind of a little bit of a smaller format book, but it's nine ninety nine. So it's a great way to get into a new series, to get a taste of it, to see if you might be interested in exploring more of it. That's just such a great price point in today's book market. Yeah, for sure. And when we get all three copies, we'll put some pictures out on social media so you guys can see what we're talking about. Yeah, that was really awesome. It was a fun event, really nice. And really nice that it was outside. I thought that was really smart of them because the numbers for COVID were ticking up the week we were there. So what about upcoming Johns? Well, I am very soon in the next week heading to Colorado for my son's wedding. 
and Utah to visit the gentleman caller's son who's already been lining up bookstores for me. I'm very <laughs> excited. So I will be reporting from the trip, but also when I get back about bookstores that I find along the way. Awesome. Can't wait. What about you? Well, nothing really immediate right now, but I wanted to let listeners know that Austin in August, Jane Austen in August, is a thing. And it started in the book blogging community where people got together on their blogs and usually one person hosts it. People just get together to read Jane Austen, to read about Jane Austen. So it's just a month-long celebration of Jane Austen. And as one of my friends on Twitter said, well, isn't every month Jane Austen you know, <laughs> month? And I was like, well, August is just an extra dose of vitamin A. So, <laughs> Very good, Chris. Yes. Pat myself on the back for that one. So Roof Beam Reader, Adam at Roof Beam Reader, that's the name of the blog. He's been hosting it for the last 10 years. And when that information is up and running, we'll be sharing it just for some of you who want to enjoy more Jane Austen. For those of you who are wanting to explore Jane Austen, and maybe you haven't yet, it's a really welcoming group of people. You don't have to be a Janeite, as they call them, to participate. Newbies are completely welcome. Very cool. So what about upcoming reads, Chris? Do you have anything lined up? Uh, Mansfield Park by Jane Austen (laughs) is going to be added to my big book stack because that one is over 400 pages. You know, I don't think I read that one. I thought that I had read all of Jane Austen's novels. I've been living as if I had. I've said that (laughs) publicly before. And then um, Paul and Trevor on the Mooks and the Gripes podcast recently had a Jane Austen episode. And they were talking about Mansfield Park. And I'm like, what? Like, nothing is ringing a bell. Now, we know that this happens to me because, you know, I didn't remember much about the historian, but I'm reading it now. Anyway, so I thought, well, I really need to read it. So I didn't put it on my big book stack because I thought, eh. But then when people started talking about Austin in August, I thought, okay, it's meant to be. Mm. All of these things are converging. So that is going on my list. And then for Pride Month, I just got in the mail. It just arrived this weekend a novel called Franny, the Queen of Provincetown by John Preston. I look forward to reading this. I don't know much about it at all. It is part of Little Sisters Classics. It's a series of books from Arsenal Pulp Press, reviving lost and out-of-print classics of gay and lesbian literature. The books in this series are produced in conjunction with Little Sisters, the Vancouver bookstore well-known for its anti-censorship efforts. More important now than ever. Yeah. So I'll be reporting back on this one very soon. It's a very short novel. It's, gosh, what is it? It's 140 pages. Yeah. Look forward to reading that. How about you? I have two on my stack. One is called Fresh Water for Flowers by Valerie Perrin. This, too, is going to go on my big book stack because it is 500 pages. And this is my book club read for July. So I think it's going to go on vacation with me. It's so cool. I've been seeing that book pop up everywhere all of a sudden. You know, I'd never heard of it until one of my buddies, Julia, she chose it for Mm us. I got this when I was at Northshire. And when we posted pictures of our stacks, our friend Carol said, ooh, that's one of my top most recent reads. And I think she said about the historian, it was one of her favorite reads also. So that was kind of funny. And then because I read so many ghost stories, I'm reading something that's going to be light and breezy called Vacation Land by Meg Mitchell Moore. This book comes out on June 14th. 
I think the last one I read took place in Nantucket. So I actually thought, even though this is a hardcover and heavy, I might take it on vacation too, because I will be missing the water mm-hmm. um, when I'm there. So we'll see. But i um, excited about that. I don't think there are any ghosts in it, but I could be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Those summertime ghosts. <laughs> Haunting some manor, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. on the coast of Nantucket. The beach ball is moving. <laughs> Coming up next is a delightful conversation we had with the audiobook narrator, Simon Vance. Such joy talking with him. And we appreciate him so much. Enjoy the conversation. We are honored today to be talking with Simon Vance. Those of you who may not know his name will probably recognize his voice. Simon is an actor and narrator of over 1,000 audiobooks. He has won 17 Audi Awards, 72 Audiophile Earphone Awards, and is an Audible Hall of Fame narrator. He performs a wide variety of book genres, from children's and adult classics, to literary fiction, to mysteries and thrillers. Emily loved his narration of Stieg Larsson's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, and last summer he brought the many characters of Bleak House by Charles Dickens to life for me. One of Simon's most recent projects is The Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving by Bram Stoker, a book he knew nothing about until he stumbled upon it in a used bookstore, which sounds like a great story. Welcome, Simon. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be here. Simon, would you mind starting by just giving the listeners a brief background into how you got into audiobook narrating? Brief being about uh, half an hour. Sure. Um, We've got enough time, haven't we? Um, I'll try and be as brief as I can. Um, I was, uh, I I guess, uh, I was BBC Newsreader in London um, in the 80s. I'd had a friend who'd preceded me into London who'd worked for the Royal National Institute for the Blind's Talking Book Service. So I knew of it. And when I came into London, I had some spare time. I was doing strange shifts. And I thought, what can I do? Well, I'll... This friend did this, and I could do it because it would be a good use of my time for charity. It was uh, unpaid. And so I went up, and I got a, a space there, and I went in every week, one afternoon a week, for about eight years, all the years I was there. And that was my apprenticeship, but I never thought of it as a career. But it was audiobooks, but for the blind and partially sighted. And then I came over to the United States almost exactly 30 years ago to take on acting full-time, and I did theatre. But again, I had spare time, and it was a then-brother-in-law who knew David Case, who was one of the original narrators for Blackstone Audiobooks, and he put us in touch, and David took me through the auditioning procedure for Blackstone. They signed me 30 years ago, and I I started with them, and I went to Books on Tape and Tantor, and then uh, the iPod exploded in, in, you know, 20 years ago, and and, uh, it's been an extraordinary journey. Yeah, can we talk about that a little bit? I mean, you just did a very quick synopsis of how technology has changed over the course of your career. I mean, audiobooks in general are growing in popularity, but the way that folks access them have really changed, which I think helps with that. How has that changed your process? Uh, Well, I'm one of those early adopters of home studio recording. Back when I started, most of the major titles, I think, were recorded at, uh, in L.A. or New York. But there were a few solo narrators around and about the place, and Blackstone was one of those companies that used those people. So I started uh, in the garage in the house we were in. I had a corner with blankets around me with a single microphone and a cassette. 
deck. It was actually two cassettes together. But so it did a sort of punch and roll. So I'd be recording and then I'd make a mistake and I'd run it back and I'd find the pause and I'd then press play and run it up to that and then slip it into record and I'd carry it on. So it was very basic, very basic, a nice cheap $50 microphone. So that was on uh, reel-to-reel cassettes. From there, we went to digital audio tape and ADAT. Uh, I never actually did ADAT, but digital audio tape I did. Then um, I went through divorce and I was on my own and I loved tech and I knew it was possible to record directly onto hard drives. So I proposed to Blackstone that I do that rather than send them tapes and stuff. So I think I was one of the first adopters of computer recording. I remember the program I use is WaveLab 1.0. I use WaveLab 11 now, I think it is, 1.0 back then. So um, I started using that. I had a corner of my bedroom at that point. Then I I remember, I'm not sure what stages I went through, but I I ended up getting a small studio, a four by six foot thing that I could move from house to house. And uh, I slowly upgraded my equipment. I used to use Windows computers, but they failed me so many times back at the time of, if people remember Windows Vista, it was notorious for crashing. So I moved over to Macs and never looked back. And uh, my microphones have slowly been upgraded over the years and the interfaces and so on. And I think the setup I've got now, I've had the longest because I think it's probably the most expensive. The microphone, for instance, I was using a Neumann TLM 103 for any of those tech geeks out there, which is a very common one in the studio. But um, I wanted to upgrade and I was testing a few different microphones and the standard in a professional studio, music, speech or whatever is the Neumann U87. And uh, I thought, well, I'll try one. I hope I don't like it because they're really expensive. <laughs> and of course, it turned out to be the one I like the most. But then it's the one that I've had longest. And, you know, you spend the money. You don't, for, for new narrators, when they come in the business, they want to get the best equipment immediately. But basically, I think you need to prove yourself and then upgrade because the voice is the most important thing. And the quality of the microphone is a sort of a nuancey thing, if you like. I'm feeling a little raspy this morning but because I've been narrating but um normally this microphone sounds perfect it's me that's 40 this morning but yeah it's it's been a slow process but as i say i've been 30 years narrating and uh i do enjoy buying new tech gear (laughs) that that was like a walk down memory lane like i remember putting cassettes into my you know my car to listen (laughs) oh yeah cassettes i remember when they were revolutionary you know after the eight tracks and then you know vinyl my dad had the big old reel-to-reel for a while. Yes, yeah, so my experience at the BBC, I was in local radio, then I was in London. I used to edit reel-to-reel tapes, the little yellow pencil and the sticky tape and stuff like that. So that was part of my decision-making when I wanted to go to a computer, because then I could record and I can edit very easily, because I recognize waveforms and so on. And my experience of what sounds you can edit out and so on and so forth really helped me from a te- technical point of view. I don't think um, you know, narrators coming to the business now have that skill so easily at their fingertips as, as I did at that time. But that was one of the things behind my wanting to take it digital. So can you talk a little bit about that, Simon? Like, What are the tools that you use to capture your narration? Do you, you know, I know you mentioned the program, but then how do you read the book that you're reading? Do you use a iPad now? Like, how do you not have page turn noises and, and things like that? Yes, well, that's changed as well, because I can remember I used to do video blogs years ago on my old website, and I'd, I'd sit there talking about the books I'd done in the last month or something like that, and I'd have a pile about two feet high of pages 
printed out that I would read from. And you put these in front of yourself and you'd have maybe put three side by side. And then if you made a mistake, I'd read it. You could move them across, you know, so, but you couldn't, of course, move them while you were recording because it made too much noise. There was also used to take old books and take a razor blade to them, which is horrifying, but um, to do the pages. So you have the pages in front of you. And then, of course, you have to, I think they call them widows and orphans. So you'd write the sentence at the top of the last, the next page at the bottom of the first page so that you could finish a sentence, then turn the page. Mm -hmm. So you had widows at the bottom and orphans at the top or something. So you, you basically didn't have to turn a page in the middle of a sentence. That was how it was in the old days. The iPad was magnificent because not only did you not make a noise when you're changing the page, but you didn't have to have any light in the studio. So you can sit in complete darkness and there's no extra heat. Because that was something, if you put a light in the studio and you close the door, unless you've got really good ventilation, which, of course, would then make noise as well, possibly, your temperature gets pretty high. And in the summer, that can be most uncomfortable. But the iPad was a, a fantastic thing. It's very easy to make notes on the page. You know, you do it with your finger or I've got one of those Apple pencils. And that's made an extraordinary difference. But that's, that's reading it off the page. Do, do you want me to get into a little technical side of how one records it into the program. I mean, you know, there are two different ways, the punch and roll and the straight record. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that'd be fascinating, I think, to hear. Well, there's a Pro Tools, maybe a program people have heard of. That's used in music studios and so on. And it's, it's a bit overkill for, uh, for audiobook narrators, but it is a studio standard. Pro Tools is a, is a complicated program, but it's one that a lot of narrators are familiar with because it's been the sort of standard in studios, as I said. Two different ways of recording, two main ways of recording. One is called punch and roll, and the other is called straight record. And they may have other nuanced names, I don't know, but punch and roll and straight record. Punch and roll is a bit like I was talking about with my cassettes, where you uh, set a marker on the file and you press play, and it plays you a few seconds beforehand, and then it drops into record and you carry on. So you're punching in and then rolling. I do straight record, which means... I can keep talking. If I make a flub or I make a mistake, I just put a marker on the file, but I don't stop recording. I think it's really cool to learn that, you know, you listen to the last couple sentences you've just said to get the tone and the yeah. pacing and everything. So you don't have that real obvious break sometimes that you hear in audiobooks. You can tell like, oh, somebody started the next day or, you know, they stepped away from the project for a while because there's such a difference in, in tone and, and pacing and everything in the middle of a scene or something or a chapter. Right. And I imagine that you prepare, right? I mean, I, that you've read the book or at least gone through it and looked for things that, you know, might have interesting pronunciations. So when you sit down to do, like when, when we, you know, met up with you today, you said, oh, I've been recording for a couple of hours this morning. Do you look at the project you have and say, you know, this would be a good start and stopping place. This is about as much as my, my voice will tolerate. Yeah, it brings up a couple of things. You, you mentioned the changes in people's voices. That's something we really need to, to bear in mind. And it's keeping the consistency from one day to the next, from one moment to the next. If you do have a pause in a sentence and you have to retake it, one thing I know that some beginner narrators can get very annoyed. So say, for example, you're counting and you go one, two, three, seven, nine, eight. Oh, do that again. One, two, three, five, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, I got that right. So they edit it and it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 
So it's maintaining that consistency. Right. So that, you know, I went out today and walked the dog. You say that the same way. I went out today and walked the dog. I went out today and walked the dog. So you consistently, so you can edit any part of that together. Um, you know, I mentioned the punch and roll, and with a straight record, I have that ability because I am doing the straight record. And if I do three mistakes in a row with parts of a sentence, I can actually edit all that together. Whereas if you're doing punch and roll, you get whatever take you got next. Right. I always break at a story break or most usually a chapter break. You know, some books don't have chapter breaks, but they might have paragraph breaks, they might have scene breaks. When you're going through and preparing the book, if it doesn't have chapters, you try and look for those with a break, you know, complete change of scenery, complete change of place. Then if there is a change, if it's an overnight break or if it's a lunch break, when you come back a little bit different, it's not quite as noticeable. But you should never take a break in the middle of a part of the story that should be running straight through. So I'm doing Hunchback of Notre Dame right now, Victor Hugo's novel. And uh, I, I always write down the chapters you know, and numbering how many pages they have, how long they're going to be. So I can look and say, I'm going to do this much in a day. And these are the chapters that I can fit in. And if, like today, I've actually done a little less than I might normally. So I probably only did an hour and a half because the next chapter is 24 pages. And I had other things to do, like talk to you. So I didn't want to get into that because that, in the size of this book, 24 pages is almost 75 minutes. So that's a huge chunk. So I put that off to tomorrow. I'll do that. And I've got a 26-page chapter to do finishing off the book on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's important to to maintain that consistency from, from day to day, from hour to hour. And how do you decide what project to take on next? I pretty much rely on my publishers to send me the material. I rarely make those choices. You mentioned the Henry Irving book. Uh, and that's one of the few occasions when I did it to choice myself and actually went to um, Spoken Realms, a friend of mine, Stephen Cohen, and uh, he runs that. And I said, I'd like to do this. So I, it was basically my own production, if you like, using him as the outlet. And as you say, I, I was in a bookshop in Pasadena, downtown Pasadena, and I saw this on the shelf and I thought, I'd be fascinated by that. I don't think it's selling very well right now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a sudden boost from here. But it's fascinating. The connection between Bram Stoker and Henry Irving is extraordinary. Bram Stoker was Henry Irving's um, business manager. And Henry Irving, if you don't know, was a very famous actor at the end of the 19th century in England. Yeah, he was like a mega superstar of his day. Yeah, he was. And he changed acting to some extent in England in his period. There was a way of acting, very overly dramatic, and he became more naturalistic. I mean, in our eyes, if we saw him perform now, it'd probably be so melodramatic, but he was at the same time as Ellen Terry and a few other quite big names in theatre at that time. But it was just a fascinating connection, and uh, he was a fascinating man. Travelled to the United States, um, met quite a few famous people. I'm trying to think of the name of the writer he met. Yeah, I think he went to Mark Twain. I, I believe he visited Mark Twain's Possibly, house. Yes, yes. Yeah, Here cool. in Connecticut, yeah, which is... We live yeah. near that. <laughs> so, so I want to talk to you about a pet peeve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I, too, had the chance to work with talking books here at the Hartford Public Library, which is, you know, recording for the visually impaired. And my job was as an editor, because finding mistakes is like my superpower. So, mm. you know, what they did there is people would record within a partnership. So someone was in the recording booth, and then the other person was on the outside of the recording booth, kind of guiding them and helping them. 
And then I would come in and just listen to the pieces, the chapters they'd done. And if there were any mistakes, and I mean, if they said, and when it should have been a them or, you know, whatever, we went back and would fix the problem. I'm not sure which system they used. I never got into the tech side of it. But lately I've been listening to audiobooks and I, I like to sometimes listen to them and read the book at the same time. And there's a lot of differences. And recently we did a, a read of Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile. And the differences were extreme. And I think some of it was trying to change things to be culturally appropriate, maybe is the right yeah, word. Yeah, up- updating it to today's sensibilities, perhaps. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I'm putting you on the uh, spot. <laughs> uh, well, it, I, I take pride, I, I, I think, in um, getting, we, we need to get every word that's written down. We need to have it correct. We owe that to the author. I, I'm, uh, I'm in awe of authors. Uh, I, I don't think we should just change things willy-nilly. Specifically for Agatha Christie, there are books out there that are a little more challenging for people today to accept. They get offended. And I suppose it may be deemed necessary. You know, talk about racism, uh, you know, sexism and misogyny and so on. It's hard. Gosh, this is a difficult question. Because from my point of view, I will read everything that's in front of me, swear words, everything. I don't have an issue. And I, I've known narrators who have in the past. I don't, I, there's one fellow I know who refused to say the F word, but I think he does now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I thought that if the author had felt it was worth putting in there, it's, it's necessary to put in there. A lot of these older books are um, like Huckleberry Finn and so on. Yes, they might have some offensive passages in them and so on, but they are, it's almost like they're historical novels now, and you have to treat them with that kind of respect, even though it may be ugly. And in fact, it's very ugliness. Bringing that to light is a good learning mm-hmm. tool. As far as accuracy just day to day, and you say you're hearing a lot of differences, if it's outside that sort of choice of where you, they're, they're actually changing paragraphs for the sake of meaning or, or offensiveness, if it's just mistakes, I think that's just very shoddy work. One thing I've noticed over the decades I've been working is that back when I started, I think the library trade put, was a, a big mover in terms of what got recorded. So it was all the classics, uh, Anthony Trollope, Charles Dickens. I did Don Quixote and all these wonderful books that needed to get done. Um, nowadays, it's very much the latest thing. Every single book has to be made into an audiobook. And what is happening is there are a lot of smaller companies who are trolling around for a lot of the self-published stuff which has a great audience. There's nothing wrong with that. There's an audience for this stuff, but it's not always very well written. It hasn't gone through the big publishing houses, so there haven't been the proofers and the editors going through it. So there are mistakes galore, which if we're doing those books, we have to be, as narrators, have to be on the ball to pick those up. And that's really annoying. And I was talking to a friend last night who'd listened to a bunch of audiobooks. He's not a narrator. He's, a, he's an actor. But he said he was noticing noticing mistakes that have been made, names changing in books. And I confront that. And I then challenge the publisher who takes it to the author and so on and so forth. But sometimes people don't, and they just read what's in front of them. And I think that's sad, the lack of gatekeepers on things like that. I understand that... Um, there is an audience. A lot of I've done a lot of fantasy books for for one publisher that have come to me in, in rather dire straits sometimes, and uh, doubles the load as a narrator because you can't really get into the story if you're forever trying to work out where the paragraph begins and ends and who's named who. You know, they change names halfway through a book and so on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little frustrating when things like that are happening, but it's it's the nature of the business right now. There is such a rush to get stuff out there. 
which is a shame. I mean, I don't do as much narrating as I used to because I'm getting a, a little older and, and trying to do a lot of other things with my life right now. And there's one writer I absolutely adore, and his name's Guy Gavriel Kay. And he's just got a new book out, All the Seas of the World. And his writing is glorious. He, he comes through Penguin Random House. I'm not sure if that's his book publisher, but that's the audio book. So he's got all the editors and the people. His books are translated into 30 languages around the world. And his books are impeccable. And they're just so well written. I, I love, love Guy Gabriel Kay's work. That's and I'm going to visit him in Toronto next week. So I was going to say, uh, do uh, audiobook narrators, do you ever have to fight for a book that you really want to do the work on? Books come very quickly, for, so I barely know that they're out before they come. Um, I mean, for Guy's books, he asks for me now, because I started uh, doing his books way back. Uh, the Fionnavar Tapestry, I think, was the first trilogy of his I did, and then Tagana and stuff like that. And I always get his books. There's a series, um, Dale Mayer does uh, South African crime thrillers, and I've done almost all of his with this particular detective, Benny Chrysal. But there had been... A British version and the American version. I mean, not American in accent, but I was doing the American uh, market version. And I had a good relationship with um, Dion, but uh, the, the English guy was Saul Reichlin, and he has, I think, South African history in his family or something like that, but he's done the British ones. But the latest one I see has been done by him and released over here. So I've lost that. So there's a sort of a, hmm, but that <laughs> happens, you know, and it's, yeah. it's just the nature of the business. I did, oh, yeah, I mean, if you... <laughs> the, the, so these are all the times I get annoyed. Um, the uh, I did the Hilary Mantel, Bring Up the Bodies, and it got great reviews. It was the second. The first one was Wolf Hall, then Bring Up the Bodies. It was the Henry VIII and his wives. Tom, actually, it was Thomas Cromwell's sort of first-person view of what was going on. Um, and uh, I was so looking forward to the third one. Hillary loved what I did with the second one. It won awards and stuff. And then uh, it took so long that they'd done TV shows and stuff like that, and the actor Ben Miles had played Thomas Cromwell in the books, and they actually had him record it. Mm. I lost that one. Mm. Uh, and, and then he mispronounced one of the main names in it. So anyway... Uh. <laughs> I'm very smug about that. But <laughs> he really, he's a great actor. I love him as an actor. I just wish he hadn't taken up audio narrating. Well, that you know, we said we weren't going to ask you any questions to put you on the spot, and here I go with a second one. Um, you know, how do you feel about actors getting in the game? It's interesting. It was a sore point a few years back because Audible introduced what they called the A-list, and it was a little A, like the Audible A, and they called it the A-list of of uh, narrators, who were all big-name actors. Samuel Jackson, I think Dustin Hoffman did one, um, a few others. They must have paid them. I mean, I think it got to six figures. It was just absurd because we're, you know, scrapping along $50 a day. I'm lying. But um, <laughs> they weren't always very good. You know, some of them were great. I can't remember who. I think Sissy Spacek did some marvellous work on a few books, and there are some actors who were very good, but a lot of them weren't very good. And it was about 10 years ago, I think. And they called it the A-list. And I thought, as if we're trying to expand the business, and if people come and say, oh, the A-list, I'll listen to this, and they listen to some big-name actor, and the book doesn't grab them, they're going, well, I don't like audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And it was frustrating for the rest of us, who'd been laboring away for decades, that what are we, B-list? So there was the sort of frustration about that. But 
as a whole, I have no problem with actors who can do the job. And, and in fact, I used to be asked when I did a little bit of coaching or sort of workshops and things, you know, do I need to be an actor to be a narrator? And I'd say, no, you don't need to be an actor, but you need an actor's sensibility. Uh, sort of the, the empathy and the, the knowledge of other people's you know, lives and being able to to embrace them and take on these characters and so on and so forth. So you need that sort of actory nature in you, but you don't have to be an actor. That said, actors do have a, a leg up in that they have that trained ability to perceive things from another's point of view, which when you're doing particularly fiction, you need that to be able to change around and tell a story. I have quite a number of friends who've moved from acting full time they've moved into narration and actually love it because the security uh, is great you know in in a way if you're if you're good you you get work from a lot of publishers and it can keep you going and they still go out and they act a friend of mine in Pasadena now Ramon de Ocampo he's an actor done a lot of parts on TV he's playing Hamlet at the theater in Glendale right now um but he's also done movies and stuff like that um and I myself I'm trying to get my own back because I've reached the point in my life where I'm, I love audio books, but I always wanted to be an actor. I did a lot of stage work in the Bay Area, San Francisco, when I first came over. And I sort of moved that to one side as my career became successful. But I got to the point now, I just want to back off and I want to do that. So I'm working on filming some real material, R-W-L, so that I can go to managers and agents and uh, see if I can get any parts in some TV and movies and things like that. So I'm going to get my own back because I, I figure I'm, <laughs> right. uh, I'm going to go win an Oscar and show them. That's right. <laughs> well, we'll keep our eye out and our ears, but That's our right. eyes now too. You know, you mentioned that you've been in the States now for 30 years, I think you said. So we were curious about if you do anything to actively maintain your British accent and what you do to protect your voice in general. Okay, but the accent thing's interesting. I've, <laughs> I've got a dialect coach tomorrow afternoon. Um, I'm just going back with her to do an American accent, to learn, uh, to, to do a better American accent. I used to, when I was a student, I went to Leeds University, and I know in a few months I adopted a slightly northern accent, and I had a good friend who came from Newcastle, and for a while I had a slightly Geordie accent. So I know it's, it's easy to pick those up. And I know people, English people, who've come over to the States, and within a short time they're talking with a, a very American twang. I do know that if I go back to England, people say you have an American rhythm about your voice a little bit. It's changed. It's changed. Um, but when I'm doing, you know, a Dickens or something like that, but when you're not thinking too hard, you do tend to adopt the accent that's around you. But for work, I'm a little more specific about how I sound. And I'm very aware of the differences in pronunciations, you know, the schedule and schedule and things like that. So I'll, I'll make mental notes about that, that where I'm having conversation with you, I might say, yes, I had a look at my schedule this week, but if it's in the book, I'll say schedule, a schedule, (laughs) (laughs) or or one of those anyway. Um, So I'm very aware of that. Um, What do you do to protect your voice? Oh, protecting the voice, yeah. Um, Well, the obvious ones, I don't go out late at night and shout and smoke cigars and drink too much or whatever. I have been quite fortunate. I don't do anything specific. I do loose warm-ups, not much. I know there are long things you can do and so on, but I tend to find a little reading of what I've done before, because quite often we talked about the consistency day-to-day. It's always a good idea to listen to the last minute or two of what you recorded the day before, even a page or so, and sort of read along with it while you're listening to what you did yesterday, because it puts you in that same place 
and gives you the pace and the volume and whatever that you were speaking at. You get in the mood again. So that's mostly the warm-up I'll do, so that when I start the next chapter, it's in much the same mood as the one before. Mostly, it actually is, you know, I was rather flippant about it, but it is. Don't don't go around shouting and screaming and, and uh, you know, avoid smoky atmospheres. When, uh, when we had some really bad uh, forest fires nearby um, a couple of years ago, yeah, I've got, I can see it now, I've got one of those masks with big stuff on the side of it. And I walked down from the house to my studio. I had this built just at the beginning of the pandemic, thankfully. So uh, my wife had to teach from home. So she took over the room I was using as a studio and I came down here. But I had to walk in the open air. So I put that on to save me breathing in that smoke because I knew that was uh, deleterious. Um, But things like that, you know, being careful of the atmospheres you're in when it's very dry. Yeah, keeping keeping the the air moist. I've got a, a humidifier. Uh, I've got an air purifier in here in the office space. Things like that. There are things to avoid on the day, like drinking. I don't drink dairy milk, but uh, things like chocolate. Um, oh, well, I would never be an audiobook narrator. Forget it. <laughs> well, you pick and choose when you're going to read it. Yeah. You know, I have it early evening or something like that, but you wouldn't walk into the studio. And I, and I, I mentioned before we went on the air here today that... Um, I just had some leftover pad thai, and that was coating my throat. So avoid the pad thai. Go <laughs> That's great. Um, what about things like apples and lemon? Do those help clear your throat, or is that just kind well, of... Well, apples, they say, are good for if you've got a smacky mouth. You know, you know, if you've got a lot of that going on, uh, the saliva, it helps to thin the saliva and stuff like that. I always have water. I've got a glass of water here. Mm. So that helps to, um, you know, lubricate as it were, because that's often a, a thing. You know, apples are for that. Uh, lemons, well, I think people can put a little lemon juice in the water and stuff like that. That can help too. But you don't drink like a gallon of honey at night or anything like that? No, not unless I'm feeling like I've got a virus coming on or something like that, and then I'll do what I can. I won't try to push through as much as I used to in the old days. There was one occasion I did the King's Speech the book, the film was based on. It was different in the book. It was more factual and stuff. But I did that, and I remember it's about a seven or eight-hour book. And I started it, and then I felt a cold coming on, and I kept going. And I got like five hours in, and I couldn't carry on. And I knew, because by the time you get you know, a couple of days into a cold, you're talking like this all the time, and you don't want to come back the next day. And then suddenly, you know, you're perfectly healthy. So I had to throw all that out and start again. So it would have been better if I just stopped as soon as I knew I had the cold right. coming so that you don't just you know, end up having those issues of trying to match voice. Yeah. And what's it like to do an audio book with multiple narrators? I know, like, for example, you did Dracula with a group of other actors. What is that like? Does everybody just record their own bits and submit them? That or? tends to be the case, yes. I only wish I could have been in the studio with Tim Curry and Alan Cumming. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a wonderful book. And um, I had recorded Dracula solo a few years before that, in fact, quite a long time ago. But it was nice to do the Jonathan Harker bits. That's his name, isn't it? Jonathan Harker. Yeah, no, we didn't do our own bits. The other big multi-voice I did, and I've done a few others, was Dune, um, and that was very popular. That was 2005 or six, And, um, yeah, we had a lot of people, and we all 
had our parts of the script to do. It puts a lot of the burden on the engineer to make it match together, especially when you have that many voices that you're trying to put together. Um, I've done a lot of books. There were some thrillers where there was maybe two or three, and then you basically do your chunks, and again, the engineer will put them together. There are cases because... um, I mean, I know we have union contracts for them now. There are times when you go in with two or three others and you record with them. I've never done one of those yet. I've done a few sort of audio drama-like things. I did, I'm in The Sandman, Neil Gaiman's um, audio drama, and I helped the director with a couple of his um, alien books. Dirk Maggs is the very talented director of those. And then I was in the room with other actors, but that was more of an acting doing a drama proper right. rather than narration kind but, of a um, crossover of, of your acting yeah. and your audiobook narrative yeah. so one last question mm-hmm. i mean i'm not sure how much of your own reading time you get but when you get time to read do you prefer to listen to an audiobook or read a paper book i i think right now i prefer to read a paper book i went through a period where i did listen to uh, some of my colleagues. I mean, it was quite a while ago, but I wanted to know what was going on out there. We don't have a lot of time. It, most of our time is either when, when I was working and doing three finished hours or more a day, you've got all the prep work to do. You've got to look ahead. You're reading what you're about to record and stuff. So that kind of takes up all the time, that and watching a little bit of TV on the side. For a few years, my wife teaches down in Irvine in, in Orange County and we were living up in the Bay Area, and I drive down and drive back. So it's about a six-hour drive down down here, and I would listen to some of my colleagues' books then, and I loved them. I loved particularly the biographies narrated by Grover Gardner. If you like biographies, he does some wonderful stuff. Does all the Robert Caro ones, the LBJ ones, and Carnegie and things like that. So I I used to listen to a lot, but I haven't for a long time. I, I like to find other things to do. In fact, I've but a few years ago, probably quite a few years ago, before I did the Sandman audio drama, but um, I just I got tired of reading words on the page and I wanted to see pictures. So I, I got Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, the graphic novels, and I had those by my bed for several months, working my way through them. But right now, Books and the New Sun was recommended by Neil Gaiman many years ago, and I find that fascinating, but I don't get a lot of time to read even now. Um, So I'll read a chapter or two and then put it down. Oh, gosh. Well, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us. This has been wonderful to learn about the, you know, the other side of the mic, what goes on. Well, I hope it makes sense. I know I'm I'm so used to reading a script and this is all free verse, as it were. So (laughs) sometimes my mind wanders off halfway through a question and answer. And it's like, where was I? What am I talking about? It was wonderful. (laughs) Where's where's the script? Give me the words. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are usually reading other people's words. You did a great job. We really appreciate your time. And it's fun to hear your voice. And we will be visiting you in the audiobook world in the future. Thank you very much. It's been a a great pleasure answering your questions. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. 
Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.